in my career at each stage, I have had decisions to make that have taken me on the left road or the right road. And for one reason or another, each of these roads has led me to a more interesting, more challenging place. I haven't been afraid to take risks along the way, starting with jumping off from academics into Amgen at a time before Amgen had any products. All of my peers thought I was absolutely nuts, as did my professors, but I wasn't nuts. It was a good move, drug development, helping people, moving innovation forward. All of that has been tremendously rewarding and has led to a life full of surprise. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Physician, scientist, patient, advocate. Glenn Pierce seems truly to be the physical embodiment of the translational impulse, driven by his own experiences coping with severe hemophilia to advance the science and the policy he hopes will eventually cure this condition for patients across the globe. This is Tectonics. I'm Lisa Soonan. And I'm David Shaywitz. And today's show is sponsored by Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. David. Yes, Lisa. What's up? So um, I'm really inspired, as you'll gather, from today's uh, guest, who is an example of a patient who is also an entrepreneur and an advocate. I feel like this is uh, uh, something that we're uh, hearing about more and more. Do you agree? Yeah. You know, I feel like, it's an, you know, in healthcare, it's also very common to find entrepreneurs who came from their own healthcare experiences and tried to to solve problems for that. So I do uh, think we're hearing more and more about it. And and, and this seems to be like taking it yeah, even to the next level totally. where, you know, I think about folks like Matt Might and Matt Wellesley, yep. um, uh, who've advocated passionately for the child's rare disease in entrepreneurial yep. fashion. And, and even people like Dinkar, Shah, uh, Dinkar Singh, who, who's, who, who is experienced with a, with a child with SMA, uh, led to uh, funded work and some, um, you know, uh, therapeutic progress uh, in that area. There's just so many ex- increasing number of examples Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, on the upside, you can say it highlights the real role of companies yep. in driving translation. But I also feel, you know, that it's such a weight on the shoulders of the people who do this. And I imagine we'll get a flavor of that from our guest today. I imagine so. So with that, I am delighted to welcome today's guest, Glenn Pierce, who, as our listeners will quickly appreciate, is one of the most uh, inspirational people around. He's one of the most inspirational people that I've ever met. And disclosure, one of his many roles involved with TVI portfolio company, Ambis, but that is not the focus of today's conversation. So, Glenn, welcome to the show, and we're so thrilled you're able to join us today. It's a pleasure to be here, David and Lisa. Thanks for inviting me. Great. So, uh, so Glenn, I understand that you hail from the heartland and grew up in Cleveland, where you were basically raised by your mom in what sounds like challenging circumstances, where you said she had to be very, quote, scrappy to get by. But this wasn't even the most difficult part of your childhood, as you were born with a genetic condition, severe hemophilia A, that made your life extremely challenging, as in you had 60 hospitalizations, you said, by the time you were 12. Can you tell us what it was like for you as a kid? How did you and your mom manage? Well, it was our normal. 
Uh, I spent about 25% of my time in the hospital, usually admitted three, four, five times a year for two to three weeks at a time. Oh, my, my longest hospital stay was three months. Uh, and uh, my shortest was really no less than a couple of weeks, dealing with bleeding episodes that were uncontrolled uh, and were um, untreatable so until the, the, the bleeding so we, actually stopped. So we know now that, hemoph- that, that this particular type of hemophilia, we understand the cause. Was the cause understood at the time? Uh, the cause was vaguely understood. Uh, when I was diagnosed in uh, 1956, I was about a year of age, and uh, Uh, half the doctors told my mom that I would be dead within five years, and the other half said there'll be a cure within five years. (laughs) Now, this was really really before much at all was known about the clotting cascade, so uh, the the death part was probably a little more realistic. The average age for people at that time to survive with hemophilia was about 10 or 12. Did you grow up with a fatalistic view of the world? Did you kind of think every minute was going to be your last? Uh, no. Uh, in fact, the opposite. Um, I grew up with a very optimistic view of the world, uh, knowing that I could get into big trouble, but that um, uh, I had a, a, a bright future to look forward to, That's really, awesome. thanks to my mom. Mm-hmm. I was surprised by this, that the cutting-edge treatment at the time, you you know, initially when you were a kid, was ice and bed rest. Is that is that possibly right? Yes, it is. Um, Whole blood transfusions were also used, but factor eight has a half-life of 12 hours. And so by the time the blood gets into the patient, the factor eight's long gone. Uh, So it really was used to replenish lost blood, but couldn't replenish any of the, the missing clotting factors. Wow. That's insane. So what would you do for three months in the hospital? How'd you entertain yourself as a young man? (laughs) Well, so I was a kid then. Uh, I had a social network in the hospital. I had friends with hemophilia who I would often run into in the hospital. We were uh, separated uh, within Cleveland proper, um, but um, met in the hospital. Mm -hmm. I also had friends who had cystic fibrosis. They also spent long periods of time in the hospital as well. So that became uh, that became really my main social outlook because I did miss a lot of school when I was a kid. Did you guys engage in sort of the peer to peer, you know, what we now call peer to peer healthcare, kind of giving each other tips and, and advice for how to cope with your condition? We did. We didn't call it that, of course, uh, but. Um, my mom would uh, routinely talk to other moms who had kids that were a few years mm-hmm. older than me mm-hmm. to uh, to try to sort out how to manage this type of bleeding episode or that type of bleeding episode, which may have been new uh, to us. Now, I could see how this sort of thing could, could really drive an interest in medicine and biology. And um, you know, it's sort of interesting because for some of us, maybe most of us, we spend our entire life trying to figure out what we eventually want to do when we grow up. But it sounds like you, on the other hand, had it almost startlingly clear in your head, even when you were 10 and you memorialized it in writing. Can you tell us about the ambition you expressed at the age of 10 for what you wanted to do with your life? Sure. So I I was 10 years old in the hospital for yet another major joint bleed, uh, confined to a wheelchair or in bed. Uh, And we had a a very innovative program at our hospital that was part of of, uh, an exploratory program at Case Western Reserve to see if children could be 
entertained and nurtured while they were in the hospital. A woman named Emma Plank had uh, developed this program. Uh, she was a professor over at Case. Uh, and so we had a playroom, and they brought in students from Antioch College to staff it uh, during the week. Uh, young men and women who were uh, interested in psychology or related social sciences, they'd come in and spend months at a time uh, working with the kids. I uh, bonded with one guy, and uh, he uh, offered to type my autobiography. And so I wrote about a four-page autobiography <laughs> at that time, uh, and uh, uh, all typed out. And one of the passages that I ran across when I was going through some old boxes in the garage several years ago uh, said, um, um, when I grow up, if I get there, I would like to cure hemophilia. Hmm. Uh, that was something that um, just captured my imagination as a way of dealing with my particular disease and maybe helping all my friends as well along the way. Wow. I mean, it, it sounds so um, optimistic and constructive. And um, I guess it's not surprising then that you pursued your interest in medicine and medical research, uh, in your case, through an MD-PhD program at Case, uh, where you also went to college. You went on to train, I believe, at WashU, also my dad's college and med school alma mater. Um, you trained in laboratory medicine and then did a hematology postdoc, but you explicitly steered clear of hemophilia um, uh, through your first several industry jobs at Amgen and Selective Genetics because it felt too fraught. Help us understand your thinking during this early stage of your career, and in particular, your desire to, in your words, segregate this deeply personal interest from your uh, sort of sci uh, burgeoning scientific career? I went into medicine because I was driven by physicians as my role models and wanting to do something with hemophilia. But along the way, I became a volunteer. Uh, and so I focused on a lot of the science and translating the science to other patients. Um, new products that were coming out, uh, the potential prospect of gene therapy back when the factor eight and factor nine genes were cloned in the early 80s. Uh, and so my medical interests took me in other places as well. Uh, and when it came time to look for a job and uh, really focus on research, I decided I wasn't interested in doing research in hemophilia because I wasn't sure I could be objective about the research. Mm. And in my research training, I learned that objectivity is an important component of the scientific method. That's very interesting. I mean, I, I wonder if, if that lack of objectivity is better or worse in some ways to, to create the passion to drive, you know, discovery and treatments. I mean, I guess you could become emotionally attached to ideas that turn out not to work. But on the other hand, you might be more emotionally driven to, to drive to success for things that you can't tell if they're going to work. Well, what I learned is that we do get emotionally attached to the research that we're doing. I got involved in congenital immunodeficiency diseases, growth factors, oncogenes, and, and I got very emotionally attached to uh, that work and was driven, uh, had passion for it. Uh, and so I think that uh, it was perhaps a mistake for me to think that um, I would need to be so objective in hemophilia when that objectivity needs to be managed um, in conjunction with subjectivity as mm -hmm. one develops passion for whatever area you're working in. And so I figured that out somewhere along the line and said, I really just want to be working in hemophilia. It sounds like you had, I guess, which sounded to me like a vision quest or something in 2002 because you sort of had this 
epiphany, or maybe it was probably more gradual and thoughtful than that, and considered. And then you, your view of work and personal evolved into one. Do you have any recollection of how that um, convergence occurred? Well, uh, back in 2002, there were a lot of things going on. I was at the end of about eight years at a startup company doing gene therapy for tissue regeneration and was pretty well burned out at that point. Um, Things didn't work quite the way we had planned. The funding didn't always come through, uh, and it was time time to move on. I also was at a crossroads with my volunteer work, and I ran um, once again to become president of the National Hemophilia Foundation here in the United States. Uh, I did that earlier in the 90s, and it was a full-time job, but I was also working at Amgen at the time, which was my real first full-time job. So this time I thought, I'm just going to quit selective genetics and focus Uh, full-time on being president of the NHF as a volunteer. About midway through my year year as president, I got a call to ask me if I wanted to head R&D at Avigen, which was a gene therapy company in the Bay Area that was focused on um, hemophilia B and uh, getting a Parkinson's drug into the clinic. Uh, And I thought, this is it. This is my opportunity to focus all of my resources on hemophilia gene therapy. So I took that job, and that was the start back 15, 18 years ago of me really focusing on the disease of most interest. So would you, you said your, your earlier company, Selective Genetics, had some troubles, had some difficulties uh, being successful. Would you have done another startup if it was out of the field of hemophilia? No, and actually, after that experience, I swore I would never do another startup, <laughs> but here I am. Here I am, but uh, Third Rock Ventures is a different kind of a place. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite different, and uh, there's a lot of support to be able to do this. Uh, and Avigen was a publicly held company at the time. It had a lot of money in the bank uh, and a sufficient amount for us to develop our clinical trials the correct way. What was the experience of working on something that you care so deeply and personally about, like the way you described your Avigen experience? How do you remain effective without it overwhelming you? I don't know if I can answer that, David. Uh, It became a 24-7 job. You can trust me. I'm a doctor. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a 24-7 job. Um, You know, my previous jobs were too, but not quite like this. This was truly 24-7. You know, I thought nothing about working at any time of the day or night, uh, weekends, whenever, on hemophilia gene therapy. I lived, ate, breathed it. It was wonderful. So that's the last part of that is so interesting. So, you know, there could have been many final phrases there where you said (laughs) you lived it, breathed it. And I could imagine saying it was overwhelming or it was Exhausting. exhausting or whatever. But you said it was wonderful. So was this like your Rudy moment, like you were ready for this moment your entire life kind of thing? Exactly. I felt like every previous job had prepared me for this one. Wow. Were you, you know, my recollection was that at that time, Avid, you know, basically hemophilia wasn't cured by Avidman's gene therapy, but you still seem to have regarded it as a very positive experience. Uh, well, I got totally immersed in uh, the technical minutia of gene therapy. And so that was important just from a learning perspective and a full grasp of what 
the problem was and what potential solutions were. A few weeks after I got there, our first patient in the high-dose group got to 12%. And I thought, oh, my gosh, my timing couldn't have been better. This is fantastic. Can you explain what that means? Sorry, sorry, explain what that means. The 12% for those of us like me who don't know what it means. Sorry about that. No problem. Uh, So 12% factor 9. So this was a patient with severe hemophilia B, missing all of his factor 9. And we administered an AAV vector, adeno-associated viral vector, delivering the factor 9 gene. And within a few weeks of delivering it, he got to 12%. And I had joined the company just shortly before that. And so I thought that the timing was just impeccable. But then what happened was he lost all of his factor nine over the next several weeks. Mm. And, and so that was a tremendous amount of pressure. Oh, my gosh, what's happening? And uh, what have we done? Uh, with it sounds patient? almost like a real-life flowers for Algernon kind of thing, right? Well, it was. It, and I felt for the patient. Um, I was worried for the patient's safety. Uh, and then it, it, of course, compromised the entire program. We went on hold, uh, and we spent the next two years trying to understand what happened to him. We brought in some of the best immunologists in the world, uh, and we went through a whole series of experiments in collaboration with the docs at CHOP, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, uh, in Stanford. And we we made some important discoveries that formed the basis for dealing with the host response to AAV uh, up to this day. Wow. Now, it sounds like you remained deeply involved in hemophilia-related projects over the next 12 or so years as you assumed roles of increasing responsibility, first at Bayer, then at Biogen. My sense is that you you basically recruited an A-team of hemophilia experts, um, that you're kind of like a hemophilia entrepreneur almost, and that you would, in effect, take these talents quite literally to companies with early assets they were hoping to develop in this specific space, kind of like the pros from Dover and MASH. Is this how you saw it, or was it sort of more emergent? It was more emergent. Um, it, uh, I suppose, in retrospect, looked like good planning. But uh, <laughs> it, uh, uh, we closed the doors. We turned off the lights for gene therapy at Avigen, and I moved over to Bear to restart their U.S. research program over in Berkeley. Uh, and I brought a number of the team with me um, because Bear had nothing. Uh, at that point uh, for research to support a $1 billion a year Factor 8 product. Uh, So we all came in. We all had our areas of responsibility from assays to preclinical, pharmacology, clinical, uh, and uh, hit the ground running. And I did the same thing uh, at Biogen. I remember uh, letting my group know I was going to head to the East Coast, and uh, they all said, well, good luck. Uh, We're we're not leaving San Francisco. Uh, and uh, over the next six months, they all came. So it worked out well because we were able, we knew how to work together. They were highly competent people. They were driven as well. And so we were able to accomplish quite a bit as a team. And one of the comments you made that it was, I thought was interesting was you said how that the hemophilia space can be uh, a little bit insular um, in that the, the, the community itself, they're appropriately cautious about outsiders. Um, and it's not like everyone has some new idea and people are like, oh, great, try it on us. Um, they've been, to some extent, burned by um, 
you know, experiences in the past. Could you amplify on on that perspective, which I imagine you understand from both patient perspective and the, uh, you know, the the researcher perspective? We were burned badly. We um, most of the community developed HIV, uh, HCV. Most of the people who developed HIV in the late seventies, early eighties, uh, have died. Uh, we had about ten thousand in the community uh, who. Um, were susceptible, uh, and the vast majority of those uh, are already dead. Mm. So it was devastating. Uh, it was uh, derived, the HIV came from the plasma-derived concentrates. There were many things that the industry was doing that we had no idea about. Uh, we had uh, no idea where the blood was, or where, where the plasma was being collected, such as in prisons and uh, along Skid Row. Uh, with a lot of drug addicts. We had no idea how much plasma was being pulled together. Uh, and the companies were not forthcoming with that, with that information. Turns out up to 120,000 liters of plasma were pooled uh, wow. to make one, one lot. And so with, with diseases like uh, Hep B, Hep C, HIV, uh, one or two contaminants in that pool would contaminate the entire pool. Uh, and lead to transmission of those diseases. So all of these risks, you know, and all of this lifetime of experience, both as a as a you know person with hemophilia and then and as a an entrepreneur in the field. And in two thousand eight, your experience changed abruptly. You were cured. How did that come about? Well, I acquired hepatitis C at some point in the distant past. Unclear. It was an inapparent infection. Um, but nonetheless, it bumped my liver transaminases um, up and down a bit over a course of uh, many decades. And eventually, by the uh, end of the 90s, early 2000s, my liver was in pretty bad shape. Uh, I was a three-time uh, interferon treatment failure, uh, and the disease continued to progress. Mm. Uh, to the point that in 2008, it was clear that if I was going to survive, I was going to need a liver transplant. For liver transplants, all we need is ABO blood group compatibility. And so my son was compatible with me. He was about 24 at the time. Uh, and he thought he'd like to see me stick around a while. And so he offered me uh, a piece of his liver. He uh, and I were getting worked up. Um, through the clinic at UCSF for um, a liver transplant, a living donor liver transplant, when I got a call from a surgeon at UCSF saying, I've got a liver for you if you want to join my clinical study. And so uh, we were um, um, visiting with my daughter at Wash U, where she was a senior. Uh, we had a little family conference and realized that uh, this was a no-brainer uh, we wouldn't be putting off the surgery until the summertime when she would have graduated. We wouldn't be subjecting my son to a, uh, uh, an operation that had some associated risk with it. Uh, so we all hopped on a plane and headed back to San Francisco, and I was transplanted the next day. Was Within it a cat hours, Do you know anything about the donor? Um, well, they don't tell you much about the donor. Um, I asked a lot of questions, got very few answers, but I know that she lived somewhere in Northern California. She went to bed with a headache and didn't wake up. Mm. Uh, and so that was a, a good situation for recipients of her organs because they were able to keep 
keep her body alive until the transplant team was able to come up and uh, harvest her organs. And then they got distributed to a number of people. So why did that cure you? Well, factor eight and factor nine are made in the liver. Uh, And so taking my old liver out, which didn't work very well and didn't make any factor eight anyway, uh, putting a new liver in, uh, it started making factor eight right away within hours. My factor eight levels were normal. They were able to stop the replacement therapy that I was on to cover me during the liver transplant. And that, uh, that was it. 100% factor eight levels. So was it bizarre for you to, you know, you're in your, I think you might've been in your fifties at that point, probably. And you're all of a sudden healthy. You've had to deal and cope with this for a lifetime. Is that a weird experience psychologically? It was beyond bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) It was, uh, it was, it was wonderful and strange and weird and unbelievable all at the same time. Hmm. What was the biggest change you made in your life as a result of this? Um, I decided to move across country and go to Biogen to develop two extended half-life drugs for hemophilia. I felt like I had a new lease on life and I was going to take on a new challenge. Hmm. That's amazing. So let's just skip, I know because we have a little bit of time left um, only, but so let's skip to the present. Um, You are incredibly deeply involved in a range of hemophilia-related topics, and I want to talk about two of these. Um, so um, can you share with us your passion for improving the situation of patients in the developing world um, as one question? And then the other um, is to ask scientifically, what are you most excited about these days, especially in the area which I know is your real expertise, your particular passion of gene therapy? But maybe do the first one about um, your um, your interest in improving and in real incredibly deep level of commitment for improving the situation of patients with hemophilia in, in, in countries uh, it, it, that don't have the resources of, of the U.S. and some other places. The majority of people in the world with hemophilia have not been diagnosed yet. Wow. Of the people who have been diagnosed, the majority have no treatment. Wow. So the, the pharmaceutical industry concentrates primarily on 15% of the world population. That's North America, Europe, uh, for the sake of simplicity. Mm-hmm. They concentrate a little bit on the remaining, on another 15%. Um, Eastern Europe, some other countries that have sufficient, uh, sufficient money to be able to purchase products. But that's it. The 70% sees nothing from, uh, from the developed world um, pharmaceutical companies. Are there, though, pharmaceutical treatments now that are highly effective, or do you have to have a liver transplant to cure this disease? Well, there are treatments that are highly effective. We have a whole host of recombinant DNA-produced clotting factors. We have extended half-life clotting factors Mm -hmm. from protein engineering uh, that work um, uh, for longer periods of time more effectively. We even have non-clotting factor replacement therapy uh, such as a bispecific antibody that can replace factor eight function. And you've been involved uh, in almost every single one of these r- remarkably, right? Um, I've had some involvement in many of the innovations that have come along. I think I've been involved with five drugs that have been approved now for hemophilia. Yeah, that's amazing. But going back to these advances um, to, to the people who are not benefiting from them right now, I, I, I want you to finish what you were saying there. 
so at Biogen, we developed these extended half-life products, and um, uh, senior management uh, began getting very interested in this disparity with the developing world. Uh, and George Skangos, who was the CEO at the time, and John Cox, who was the head of manufacturing, uh, really wanted to do something. And so the end result was a commitment to donate 1 billion units of clotting factor to the developing world over a period of 10 years. Uh, to put that in perspective, about 6 or 7 billion units a year are used in clotting factors. So 1 billion units over 10 years is still a substantial amount of clotting factor. It's not just some BS amount, is your point? No, it was a commitment. Um, it was a uh, commitment in, for the initial five years to the World Federation of Hemophilia. And I became very interested in wanting to help this program successfully get launched. And so after I left Biogen, I um, joined the WFH, World Federation of Hemophilia Board of Directors, and took an active role in developing the expanded humanitarian aid program. Mm -hmm. We're now treating 18,000 patients in 60-some countries around the world wow. uh, and making a huge difference. These products are making such a huge difference. We have other contributors to the program as well. Uh, and so overall, um, besides the 100 million units a year or so from Biogen and Sobe, uh, their partner, we're delivering another 100 million units or so to um, the developing world from other partners. It's been a wonderful experience and is helping those individual patients. I think that's amazing. And I'm struck by the, the, the challenge I often see from companies that they want to help people in emerging markets, um, but really um, there is no business model. If it can't be done through some charitable means, you know, it can't be done. Uh, and companies can't profit from it in any way or even break even. Is that... Is that true? I mean, do you see different ways of serving these populations, whether hemophiliacs or other types of diseases, um, outside of the, you know, the humanitarian aid kind of approach? Great question. I do, um, but it's it's a long time frame, Lisa. Um, the humanitarian aid is making a difference both on the ground for those eighteen thousand people, but also we're training physicians. We are working with governments to increase support for hemophilia treatment centers in these countries to get them to start to buy some product along the way, small amounts of product to mm -hmm. start with. Um, but more importantly, to provide the infrastructure for good lab diagnosis, good supportive care, the kind of care we've got here in the United States to start translating some of that over. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's, that ultimately will be of benefit for the purchase of clotting factor, but but I think that that is probably still a drop in the bucket. To me, the only solution for hemophilia in the developing world is gene therapy. Once and done, vaccine model. Mm -hmm. There's not mm -hmm. enough capacity in protein manufacturing facilities around the world to make a sufficient amount of clotting factor to treat everybody with hemophilia in the way we're treated in Europe and North America. So let me follow up on that point because it's a great, it'll be a great final point for us because it brings together a lot of the, a lot of the topics um, given your, your, your expertise in gene therapy and in hemophilia. 
often one thinks it, it's not usual to think of gene therapy and developing countries sort of in the same breath. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, and by the way, the idea that you you know the, the, the approach that you're talking about. I mean, you could also the flip of it is that having the economic incentives to develop these things rapidly creates their availability. There de- accelerates their discovery in the first place, so that we can begin to appropriately wonder how to make sure that they are that that there aren't inequities but it's better to at least it, as a starting point you'd rather at least have the inequities which you can then fix than have no inequity by having no innovation but on the gene just my little commentary there on the <laughs> gene therapy side what excites you most about what's going on in gene therapy and how that can have an impact for hemophilia well i've had the benefit of being cured of my hemophilia and i find it hard to describe the wonderfulness of that kind of an experience. Uh, I think that my brothers and some sisters with hemophilia deserve that same experience. Uh, Gene therapy can provide a sufficient amount of clotting factor to prevent most or all bleeding episodes and really give a person that new lease on life that I've I've had the opportunity to And do you feel like it's really here? Because the you know we've been hearing it, the idea of fixing a bad gene with gene therapy has been around for as you as you as you've lived for some time. Um, do, what what makes it different? Why is it different now? We have overcome hurdle after hurdle, solved problem after problem, and yes, the first generation is here. I would expect first generation factor eight, factor nine gene therapies to be on the market within the next two to three years. Uh, And there'll be continued innovation. They'll improve upon those. There still are a lot of problems associated with gene therapy. The variability of response, the fact that many patients have been exposed to AAV and therefore can't necessarily take the gene therapy. But all of these problems have solutions and it's just a matter of working through them problem by problem. It's so inspiring to hear the story, and it's so rare that we hear stories that end with cure, right? We hear about management, we hear about, you know, sometimes prevention, but we rarely hear about cure. So I think it's really wonderful to hear how you turned uh, what could have been a personal tragedy into something that... I'll have to have Diana on to talk about survival. Well, I know, I mean, yeah. FC is probably one of the only other examples of this in modern times, you know, that I've been thinking about it. So I think... You know, it's pretty remarkable. And some cancers, clearly, we've, you know, managed to figure that out, sort of. It's really uh, inspiring to hear about and just so appreciate your sharing your story with us. Incredibly inspirational, Glenn. Thank you so much. Well, you're quite welcome. I've gone with the flow, and the flow has taken me to some pretty interesting places. Well, that was uh, really inspiring. As I said, I mean, you really, with the exception, like you said, of Hep C and, and the occasional cancer, you really rarely hear about cure. You hear about, you know, the long slog to manage disease. So the fact that somebody could not only invent, you know, Right. I mean, I, mean like, I, think, I think the subtle distinction here is like he wasn't, yeah. he was cured by transplant. Sure. Right, right. But I understand your more general point. Yeah. I mean, to me, I really do find him to be the example, the distillation of the translational impulse. Sure. And like when you have someone who... You know, it's sort of like just sort of this world of academics publishing mm-hmm. papers. But when it comes to really wanting to make a difference and fix your disease, like you think about entrepreneurs, you yeah. think about actually industry, right. and you think about making stuff. But then he also thinks about in- inequality and trying to take mm-hmm. not just a disease for the quote privilege, but being able to take the cures once they are developed, once they are created, um, and ensuring that they're um, uh, 
that everyone around the world has access to it. So he's just an incredibly inspiring person at every level. And, um, you know, if all of us could sort of live, you know, sort of take some, you know, some small measure of the inspiration that yeah, he brings and represents. Absolutely. Well, you can uh, follow David's writing at Forbes. Uh, please remember to rate us on iTunes and leave a comment. Help others discover the show. You can follow Lisa Soonin at VentureValkyrie.com. We're grateful for our sponsor, Manat Health, a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm and a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help its clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded in Tectonic Studio B in beautiful Mill Valley, California. Be well. Have a happy sunny day.